1: a-R-T-O-F-M-A-N podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness Podcast. Now, Gary Hoover loves Books. Among the nine companies he founded was the bookstore chain Bookstop, which was acquired by Barnes and Noble. He has a personal collection of, get this, sixty thousand books, which he had to purchase in an abandoned strip mall medical center to house. And he's the author of his own book, which is about books called The Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. Today on the show, Gary shares how his fascination with books was born in his youth, why the collection he amassed over the decades is almost entirely nonfiction, why he prefers physical books over ebooks, and why getting your hands on old books can be particularly beneficial in enhancing your knowledge of the world. From there, we turn to Gary's method for digesting a book, which allows him to glean its most valuable nuggets in just 30 minutes without having to read it cover to cover. We also talk about whether Gary takes notes on the books he reads and how to incorporate more serendipity into the way you do your own reading and build your home library. After the show's over, over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash hoover. All right, Gary Hoover, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, it's great to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me.
1: So you got a book called The Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. And you're an expert at this because you have been <laughs> reading your entire life. In fact, you live in a house. You've got a 33-room building. 32 of them contain your personal library of 60,000 books. So we got we to gotta start there. I thought my book collection was out of control. How did you end up with a collection of 60,000
0: books? Boy, you know, I, I think it really started when I was a little kid and... I remember I bought, there were books called the golden guides, the guides to the birds and guides to the mammals and rocks and minerals and little paperback books. I've still got them. And I thought it was so great that I could look out and see something or observe anything in life and then go look it up and find out what it was and where it came from. And over time, I know at one point as a kid, I said, well, I'd like to compile a list of everything, everything that exists. And I remember this sounds really weird. I went to a boat dealer and they had brochures about the uh, different kind of boats they carried. And I was a little kid on a bicycle that lived in the neighborhood. And I started picking up all their brochures. And they said, oh, kid, you can't have those. You know, they only had so many brochures or whatever. They were jealous of them. And I said, well, I just want to learn about whatever the name of the boat companies were. And they said, well, I'll get an encyclopedia. And I said to myself, well, stupid guy, you know, the boat companies aren't in encyclopedias. And I lived in this GM factory town, Anderson, Indiana, had like 27,000 General Motors workers in a town of 60,000 people. And, you know, when I went to look up General Motors, it wasn't in the encyclopedia either. And so I'm like, well, there's all this stuff and where do I find out about it? And uh, I got especially interested in companies because I want to know about General Motors. You know, how did it work? Not If I asked my teachers, they said, oh, it make, they make Chevrolet, Buick, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, and I said, no, 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 I know that. But, you know, who started it and where did it come from? Who runs it today? Is it a good company or bad company? And and I found out in the library there were great big books called Moody's Manuals that told about every company in America, every company you could buy stock in, every public company. And I started going through those. I still have my notes. I would bicycle down the library. I conned the librarian out of giving me his old set. New set comes out every year. And he gave me the old one. Great big heavy books now they sell for thousands of dollars, the uh, the new ones. And I just, uh, you know, the idea, books to me opened the whole world. I could study Brazil. I could study lizards. I could study General Motors. Everything was there somewhere in a book. And I started collecting them. <laughs> and, and my real, uh, my first love, well, one of them, uh, trains and geography, I guess, are my first loves. And So I started reading chains magazines because magazines have also always been very important to me and learning in a lot of ways beyond books. But I got into geography. My dad was a traveling salesman and then a sales manager, and he used to love to drive all over the country with the family. And I got to be the guy with the road atlas, the Rand McNally Road Atlas, which was one of the best-selling books in America for decades and learned how to use maps, which are really works of art. And and so actually, atlases. I think, the first book I bought with my own allowance. Well, one was on trains, and the other was a, a world atlas for like 50 cents in the late 50s when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And now I have pretty much every atlas you can buy. I I have frequent shopper cards from bookstores in Tel Aviv, Moscow, Chiang Mai, Singapore, where I've only been in once, (laughs) but I walked in and I spent like a thousand dollars. I cleaned out all their atlas and map sections and business sections and birds and so and and I estimate, I think when you read my book, I think when I reread it, I had three, two or three different numbers in there. But I would guess over 70% of what's in my massive library is not available online. And that shocks people, especially younger people, when I tell them that. They think anything about geography or about travel or about birds or about companies you can look up online. And yet, you know, a lot of the great stuff, the classics, they're still under copyright. They're, they haven't been digitized, even if they're off the of copyright. There's so much in books that it's, uh, it's the only source. So now, to me, books are kind of a form of magic. So I've never regretted buying a book, you know, and I bought some that I really disliked or disagreed with. But still, I helped the publishing industry and I helped the author. And, um, you know, so um, my life has just been I've been a bookseller, a book publisher, a book author, but above all else, a book collector.
1: Uh, okay, so uh, basically, you just from a young age, you've had this fascination with with books. Started with atlases, magazines. As you as you got into adulthood and you know teenage, young adult years, was there a particular type of book you were looking for to add to your collection, or was it just any book that sparked your interest? Fiction, nonfiction, biography you were going to buy it.
0: Uh, No, I'm interested in understanding the way the world works. I always said that if I hadn't become a retailer, which is really my profession most of my life and the field I love the most, I would have been a social scientist. But psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics, political science, understanding how society works, how you can make life better for people. And I was blessed to go to the University of Chicago, which has a real strong social sciences area. Four of my economics teachers later won Nobel Prizes. And to me, retelling is really just applied social sciences. So you're applying geography, you're applying economics, psychology, sociology, all that jazz. So, and, and really trying to understand how the world works led me a couple of things. One is to study the classics, the basics. Like if you're going to study business, you've really got to start with Peter Drucker, the great business thinker. There's all this stuff, all these new books published, but most of them are the fad of the month or of the year they're totally forgotten in 6 months or 2 or 3 years whereas the basic lessons are timeless. So and I, and I'm interested in facts. I'm interested in data. I prefer books that have charts and tables in them. I love big government reference books and, and I ha- I can't tell you how many books I have but all they are are books full of numbers and data. And I prefer that to reading somebody's opinion. I'll read people's opinion later. But you know, I read so much of the current books and it's they're really trying to use emotion to tug on your purse, your strings, heart strings. I say purse strings, but sometimes purse strings. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's true, too. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I remember one book and the tables, the maps and stuff in the book said the opposite of what the author said of the whole premise of the book. And they couldn't even read their own data right. So I, I want to draw my own conclusions. I want to be a skeptic. A skeptic, not a cynic, where a skeptic is from Missouri, you know, show me, uh, let me double check the facts. I don't really believe what you're saying until I double check for myself. A cynic is somebody who distrusts your motives and thinks you're up to evil and all that. So I'm never uh, cynical, but I'm always skeptical. So my library is nonfiction. My library is full of books, full of facts and data, encyclopedias and dictionaries on every subject you can imagine. It's really, I always say, I pretty much cover every subject except cooking and sports. I don't cook, but I do have a lot of books about food, the history of foods and vegetables and fruits. And I have, I, coming from Indiana, I love auto racing and I love uh, basketball. So I have sections on them. I kind of got into a World Cup, but I'm, uh, my baseball friends would say, oh, you have a terrible library. At the same time, with 60,000 books, somebody will say to me, well... Do you have a much on this subject? I say, no, no, not much. Only 12 books. you know. <laughs> so sometimes what to me is insignificant or was just a brief interest uh, for a few weeks, although I usually keep every interest, I, I, I gain new interest every year and then I keep everything. But you know what? To some people would be a, a big library to me. I tend to, when I'm interested in the subject, like the nine books that came today, well, four of them are on the same subject. Well, I said, well, I really want to get my head around that. And I want to compare what different authors are saying. But I especially want books with data, facts, and information. So my attention span is just too short for a big, fat novel. I've always said, hey, if I ever really got into literature, it would cost me a fortune because I'd have to buy another 40,000 books or whatever, 60,000 books, you know. But I do enjoy short stories and I enjoy movies. But I mean, real life, nonfiction, nothing could be more amazing. You read the biographies of these great people, these great business people that I study and write up on my websites and stuff. And, you know, no, no fictional story is more dramatic or heart-wrenching or whatever. So, no, my library is really and, and selective. I, as when I had the bookstore chain that I started, my friends and I did, I got free books from the publishers and I would turn them away. Or I would put them out on the front desk to say, anybody wants these, take these, because they would give me books that I didn't really want in my library. On the other hand, I have other places in my library where there's a gap on the shelf. I keep a list of important books that haven't been written yet, where I say, nobody has written X. For example, there hasn't been a good history of the General Electric Company written since like the 1940s. And that's crazy, you know, as important as that company is and all the changes they've been through. And so I've got a gap waiting for somebody to write that book. In a sense mine is is a very selective approach even though it's come to 60,000 books now.
1: All right, I want to talk I want to, I'd like to talk about how you select books and also how you organize your books. You said you have spots available. But before we do, I think the question some people want be thinking right now is like why physical books? Like why use 32 oh, yeah. rooms when you could just get a lot of these on a Kindle?
0: Yes, yes. I books the, the portability the ability to read them on a beach or on an airplane or in bed and everything i use a tablet i love my tablet but it just doesn't hold the same way but for me the and the durability these books now they're made on acid free paper so they're going to be around for hundreds and hundreds of years so i've already got you know some books that are 200 plus years old but the main thing is that the way i what i call digest a book that was the best word i could come up with i don't read a book sequentially i don't open it up and start at the front and read it to the back end i have my own system because i really believe in efficient learning i want to learn as much as i can and understand as much as i can as efficiently as uh, the best use of my time and so my method is is set to do that and i when I get a new book, I'll spend 15 to 30 minutes with it to really understand it and get the key ideas. And I can go into details on that. And that's all covered in, the, in, the, in my book, The Lifetime Learner's Guide. But Kindle and all that, they're wonderful. And I totally understand the appeal. the lightweight and have a thousand books on a gadget and all that. But you can't really do my non-sequential reading method. And you can't do it fast with an e-book. Some of my books will have 30 to 40 bookmarks in them, places I've noted important pages. Most of them have three or four or five. I use little origami paper, little like two inch by two inch squares so it doesn't bend the book and it's e- easy to find. And I, in my method, I make heavy use of the index. So I'm looking up things that I know something about because that's what allows me to remember pretty much everything I read or all the important ideas. Because I like, okay, so I know a lot about the history of General Motors, having grown up in the General Motors town. I know less about Ford. They were the evil enemy when I was a kid. And so when I buy a book, a biography of Henry Ford or a book about the Ford Motor Company, which is an amazing company, I go to the index and I look up General Motors. I look up Alfred Sloan. He was the man who really ran General Motors and built it into the great company that it was But before it went into decline in the last 30 years. And then I read and I find, oh, they knew each other or they hated each other or they liked each other or they never met, you know, or they competed, you know, when Ford brought out the V8 in the 30s or whatever. And how did GM react? So I'm always using that index. And I I can be in a position where I'll have literally have like six or seven of my fingers in pages in between them. And I'll be flying back and forth between, wait, this table says this and this paragraph says that. Or, you know, this section says this and this says that. And you just can't do that with an ebook. And I, and I can move very quickly. And, you know, a kind of a parallel thing is the use of paper maps. I did a blog post once about why we need paper maps. When I'm doing a Google map or a, a map on my tablet or on a smartphone or anything, it can tell you how to get from here to there. But it can't tell you what detours you might make. It can't tell you about that jazz festival you've always wanted to see that's only 10 miles off the road or that cool museum or, you know. And the thing is, if you take an old-fashioned big paper map or a road atlas, you can zoom in and out at incredibly high speed. If I take a big folding old gas station map of Texas, I can zoom in and look at everything right around the little town, Flatonia, where I live. And then I can just by moving that map and moving my eyes, I can get the whole scope. I can understand how it fits into its context because I'm, a, I'm always looking for context. You know, whatever subject I'm looking at, what is around it, what happened before it, what happened after it, what competed with it. And so the kind of things I do, you just you, you can't do with an ebook. It, it would take much more time and much harder to fly back and forth because I'm not, I'm not reading from the front to the back. I just don't have the time or patience for that. I want to understand the book, get my head around it. And I spend a huge amount of time on the table of contents. I'll stop 10, 15 of that 15 minutes. Half that time might be on the table of contents. If it's well constructed, it's basically an outline of the book. And I can look at those chapter headings and say, no, wait a minute. Why on earth is that in this book? You know, I don't understand that. And I'll go read the first and last paragraph of that chapter, whatever. Understand, well, why is it here? Or I'll say, ah, that chapter is exactly. I was trying to figure out why the oil industry moved from Pennsylvania to Texas. You know, what was Spindletop? Ah, there's a chapter about the history of Spindletop, which was the first big strike in Texas and got all the big oil guys to start looking down here instead of just in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And yeah, so those are some of the things I do.
1: Yeah. And another, that's the reason I like physical books too. It's a lot easier to manipulate and you can go back and forth really quickly. Like on the Kindle, it's designed to read sequentially, which is really frustrating. The other benefit to physical books and keeping a library of physical books, I've noticed with my, I've got hundreds and hundreds of books on my Kindle, but once I read a book on Kindle, like I forget about it. When I have a physical book, for some reason I I pass by it and it allow having that library allows me to like, well, I want, I'm looking for this topic. I know I have a book and I, something about the physicality of it. I can locate things or it allows for serendipitous. Like, well, I'm going to, Oh, I'm looking for this book, but I, Oh, here's this book that's sort of connected to that idea. Maybe I'll dig into that. I can open that flip through the book really fast. You can't do that with a Kindle.
0: No, absolutely. And, and, and also there have been some studies uh, that indicate you learn differently when you read electronically. And and the other thing too is I I do spend a huge share of my life in front of a screen. I'm in front of a screen right now, you know. And I I write and I and I do read. I read a lot of PDFs. I'm probably on Wikipedia 30 40 times a day. I'm googling all over. So at at some point, you know, your eyes get tired. And, you know, you get old like me. And so I think there's a limit to how much time you should spend and especially when I see especially young people doing it in dark rooms and stuff and the contrast uh, between the bright screen and the darkness around you. I don't I, I don't think to do that long term. I mean, I guess these movie critics that sit there and watch 15 movies in a row, figure, they figured out how to adapt to it. But no, no, books are just and, and I don't know if you've looked at the numbers, but, you know, uh, print books are growing faster than ebooks and have been for several years. Bookstores, which you've really been through, the ringer with Amazon and everything, they've bounced back. The best independent bookstores in the country now are doing pretty well. The ones that are allowed to open. People, people understand and and uh, get the idea of books. And I see more and more websites about books, the best books to read, fiction and nonfiction. So I think the trends are going the right direction. And and books are going to be around forever because. I think about, oh, what are all these books going to be worth when I die? You know, and are they going to be worthless, and they just take them and put them in a dumpster, or are they going to be worth a fortune? Uh, I hope the latter because the money will go to my favorite charities. Uh,
1: and so, how do you organize your books? Do you like do decimal system, or do you have your unique Gary Hoover uh, in,
0: in my yeah. head? In my head, uh, um, e- each of my rooms here. This I, I found just a bargain on a, a community health clinic with like thirty some little exam rooms that had gone broke and was sitting here vacant for a couple of years in this little historic railroad town, Flatonia, Texas. And, uh, and I said, wow, that's the place for me to, to move to. So each room is a different subject. There are a couple of subjects that take up two rooms and the rooms are of different sizes. It took me about three months to plan out all 200 bookcases, all 60,000 books. What went where, how many did I have of each subject and, uh, fit them in small rooms and big rooms. I've been told I'm on an advisory council of the Graduate School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin. And that used to be the library school. We still train librarians, but we uh, the school also does uh, user uh, experience and how to use the web and all that. But they told me that when a big library gets a gift of some big private library, one like mine, that they often find that the owner has had their own system. And they usually learn from that. They see a different way of connecting things. And and I learned, I haven't developed with my friends a bookstore chain. I learned, man, there are a lot of books. I never realized, but a lot of books can go into two subjects. You have books that are like about philosophy and physics. So it's going philosophy or is it going physics? Bookstores have a biography section, but if you have a biography of George Gershwin or Igor Stravinsky, does that go in a music section or does that go in a biography section? And it's very difficult to put a book in two different sections and keep track of that. That really challenges uh, technology to make that all work. And, you know, if you sell out in one area and forget to refill it. So you pretty much have to put them in one place or the other. So, no, I, I essentially have my own system. But, but I think when, when, when I move on to the big library in the sky, my house will become a used bookstore And I think most good book collectors will find it great because, uh, oh, that's the railroad room. Oh, those are the two architecture rooms. Oh, that's the nature room. That's the bird book cabinet or bookcase, you know, the tree book section. So for most people, I think it'll work and be pretty straightforward.
1: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. All right. So let's walk through your process on how you digest a nonfiction book. You, you say you're doing 15 to 30 minutes and this is, you're not, you're not reading the entire book. You're, no. you're doing sort of a, you're manipulating the book, so You figure out, I mean, this is how, this is how you screen books, whether you should hold on to it and dig deeper into it, correct?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, You know, most of the books that I buy, I have checked them out enough on Amazon or read reviews online or whatever. So I already know I'm interested in the book and and want to learn from it. I I think the first step is, and I've talked to a lot of people about these subjects, and I think some people have trouble with this. But the first thing is to realize the book is mine, okay? The minute I've paid for it or borrowed it from a library, I believe in libraries and been very supportive of libraries, the minute I get it, it's mine. And I can read it if I want. I can not read it. I can read it backwards if I want. You know, <laughs> I, I can just stare at one map in the middle of it for an hour and ignore the rest. It's my book. And I can do what I want with it. And it and it's and, it, and it's gotta interact with my mind, you know, and the way my mind works. So, you know, first of all, I, I want to look at well, what's the basic thesis of this book? Who is the author and where are they coming from? What are their credentials? And I'm not obsessed just with, okay, they've got a PhD from Harvard. They got four PhDs from Harvard and Yale and whatever. And therefore they're smart. No, but I, but that is worth knowing and say, well, at least they spent a lot of time going to school and those are supposed to be pretty good schools. But you know, if I study philosophy, there are a lot of old Greeks that didn't go to Harvard. And, and there's a guy named Eric Hoffer, H-O-F-F-E-R, who was as good as any of them. And he was a, like a bee picker and a longshoreman who didn't have any, any degrees of any type. But I still want to know. And if I'm reading, I love what I would call political economy, where politics and economics uh, interrelate. And people come from the left, people come from the right. Well, I want to know that. And, and before I start, Uh, So I do, I read the biography of of the author. Um, This sounds strange, but I even look at the publisher because I've been in the book business long enough and collected enough books to know that if it's a railroad book from Indiana University Press, or if it's a book about Western history from the University of Oklahoma Press, or if it's pretty much any book from the Oxford University Press, one of their uh, handbooks, they call them on all kinds of different subjects. I know, hey, that's, that's gonna be a pretty darn good book. Those editors know what they're doing and know that subject. So I will even glance at the publisher, but I'll really study that table of contents, that outline of the book. If it's if it's done right, it'll really tell me, you know, what, what the chapters are saying, what order they're in, what ones I'm most interested in. And then I delve into that index. I look for things I've already heard of. If I'm I studied under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago in economics, if I'm reading a book on the history of the car industry. And there's an entry in the index for Friedman. I'm like, well, what's that doing in here? Why? Why could he relate to the car industry? Both subjects I love: economics and the history of the auto industry. And and I look and say, well, why isn't that in the index? Uh, I won't won't buy a book if I, if there's something important that's not in the index that I think should be there. You know, a history of the auto industry that doesn't mention Henry Ford. You know, well, that's nuts. I, I don't think a book like that exists. But but I've seen some pretty bad examples. So. You know, and, and then I read the sections. It, it, uh, 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 depending on the type of book, I'll read the first paragraph of the book, the last paragraph. I might read the whole first chapter. I, and, and the other thing, if you look at current business books, and again, that's an area where I say, well, I don't really collect those. And yet I probably have, you know, a thousand that were current business books at the time over the last 50 years. A lot of them, they should have been a magazine article. You know, they should should have been 30 pages or whatever. And they take and they say, here's my big idea. And here's an example of it. And here's another example. And here's another example. And I'm like, well, if I don't get your basic idea by example number two, maybe I should stop and slow down and think about it and read that example again and maybe even do more research, look it up online or Wikipedia or whatever you know, I don't need you telling me the same thing over and over to fill up a 250-page book so it makes a fat book that you can charge money for, you know? And an awful lot of it is about slowing down. I'm not a speed reader. They gave me remedial reading in seventh grade or whatever. I didn't do very well. I, I have to stop each sentence or each paragraph. If, if it really has something to say, if it didn't just fluff, I need to stop and think about it. I remember as a kid, it always took me forever to do homework, especially in the social sciences, which I love, because I'd read something about history or geography or about Brazil or Indonesia, and I would go off daydreaming about it for 30 minutes. And then, oh, now I got to answer the stupid question in the homework, you know? And I I took longer than anybody else that I know of (laughs) sitting there doing homework because I would be off thinking about, wow, what's that really mean? And is that really true? Can I look it up somewhere else? So, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm really engaged with, with what I read, but I don't want to be reading the fluff. So, so I have once in a while read a book cover to cover, but I find it kind of uh, uh, painful.
1: Right. Okay. So, okay, so you fifteen minutes. You're looking at the, the the biography of the author, their credentials, their history, why they're writing this book. You're gonna look at the table of contents, which is really useful. I don't think a lot of people do that. You're gonna see the general outline. Then you might read the first chapter, maybe a little bit of the last part of the book to see the conclusion. Then you also mentioned the index. You're gonna make use of that index to see. Oh yeah. You know what? If, are they hitting on stuff that I that I'm that I think should be in this book? If it's not in there, this is probably not a good book, etc.
0: Yep. Yep. No, the index is huge. And I also, if a book has footnotes in a bibliography, if it's subject I know something about, I'll look at that bibliography and say, okay, have they looked at the books I know are good in this field? You know, And sometimes I'll find a book and say, wait a minute, they didn't even read that book. And they're writing this book about the same subject. Man, this is not a good sign. Other times I'll say, wow, they have, they've, they've read all these other books I already have. And then I got to tell you, over half of all the books I buy are triggered by a bibliography or a footnote where I've got a book and I said, wow, this looks like a great book where they got this information or this data. I need to order that. So an enormous share of the books I buy are at least 30 years old. I mean, a lot of the best stuff that I have is that I learned from is from the 20s and 30s, but certainly the 70s and 80s. And 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 what's interesting is those older books. Certainly, anything over twenty or thirty years old can be very difficult to find on Amazon. They're on there, but their search system is so focused on the more recent books that I find it's ninety percent of the time it's faster to type in the author's name and the title in Google search. It'll show me an Amazon link. Hit that, and the book will show right up. Whereas if I try to use the search box on Amazon. Some of them are buried like thirty pages deep, you know. Even when you type in the name of the book and the author, their Amazon search has really gone downhill over the years. So uh, somebody's not paying attention there. And yet, of course, I I use Amazon every day, and I wouldn't wouldn't be able to have my library without them.
1: Oh, okay, so this sounds like this this fifteen this literally takes fifteen to thirty minutes. This sounds like the sort of the inspectional reading of Mortimer Out Adler.
0: Yes, right? how to yes. read a book, fame. Absolutely. How to read a book. That's a great book. And you mentioned
1: another benefit of paperback or just like physical books is that the older books, like you, I've noticed this too, is like I, I get more out of an older book that was written 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago compared to a book that was written just recently. Oh, yeah. and, it's ama- and it's amazing. And none of that stuff, none of that, a lot of these books, like the information in there aren't, isn't online. So yep. if you didn't read the book, you never would have known about this stuff.
0: No, a- absolutely, and and the other thing too is, especially I'm studying organizations, business, governments, you know, economies. When you when you have an old book, you can see the full arc of uh, you know whatever the idea or the organization was or a technology. Like I've been studying the history of the telegraph, you know, which was really the beginnings of telecommunications. Well, with old things, you can see how they rose up, how they prospered, how they peaked, how they maybe made a bunch of people rich, you know, or a lot of people tried to get rich, like the gold strikes in California in the 1840s and stuff, the gold rush. And then you see how they died. And so if I read a book about, well, guys, you know, I I can find books in my library that are how the Japanese are going to take over the world. I probably would have been what, the 70s or 80s. Japanese companies were buying American movie studios. They were buying other American companies. The Japanese were just beating us to death. And oh, all the U.S. companies are going to be owned by the Japanese. Well, that's a really interesting book to read because then I can look and think, well, what was their logic and what did they think and why did that not turn out to be true? And then a few years later, I can find you another book or two or three or four. That's the Saudis are going to own the whole world. And they have all the money in the world and they're going to buy up everything in America, you know, and the Gulf States countries and everything, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and all that. And that hasn't quite come true. You can, I can read books about, oh, there's a great company. Look at it. They're all, all going to set records and everything, a book from the 50s. And then that company's bankrupt by 1975. And I and sometimes I have to go outside the book, go to Wikipedia or, or uh, Wikipedia is really spotty on business history, sometimes awful, sometimes good. But there are other places I can dig. If the company still exists, I can pull their annual report or I can look at their stock chart on Yahoo Finance or something like that. So those old, old books, you know, you, you can learn so much if you're willing to take the time to stop and think on your own and really think about what you're reading, why they wrote it, why they felt that way, where they went wrong and where they were Right.
1: So you're using this, this inspectional reading process and trying to extract the information that you think is the most useful by using this process. How do you take notes on book? I mean, are you, do you have like a notebook that you use to take notes and keep track? How, yeah,
0: is- no, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid my answer there may not be very satisfying. I don't take notes. I take notes in my head. But at the same time, I do. I put bookmarks in these books, these uh, origami paper, little two inch by two inch sheets. And and anytime I see an important table or chart or a quote or oh, this was an event in this person's life, anything I think, man, that's something I want to if I come back to this book, that's one of the pages I want to look at. And so I've got books that have 30 or 40 or more of those little origami bookmarks in them, usually just four or five or six or seven. But and those stay in the books. They go back on the shelf with those bookmarks in them. So that's probably the closest I come. And, and then a lot of the ideas, because I really believe in what I call in my book, getting in the flow, that information, the more you use it. So if I learn something, I feel I have a, I don't know if it's an obligation or a duty, but I, I feel I need to share that, right? <laughs> I can't keep my mouth shut about it. And that, in my case, takes a form of writing. Well, I make speeches and I teach classes too, but most of it I write. And I have two websites and have all the stuff I've written over the last several years. And, and books. Uh, like Peter Drucker said, the best way to learn a subject is to teach it. So if I can take what I learn and either write it up or talk about it to somebody, anybody, you know, uh, that just pounds it deeper into my memory. And so I think most important stuff and draw conclusions. conclusions. But, but I do, I write to myself a lot. I can't tell you how many Word documents I have that nobody but me has ever seen. Or I'll just go off on a riff, you know, say, well, what about that subject? And I'll just write up my thoughts and put them away. And 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 so that is a form of note taking. And sometimes I won't look at it for four or five years. And I'll look back at it and say, Oh man, I was I was full of it. You know, I had it all wrong. Or wow, you know, I'm smarter than I thought I was.
1: Okay, so yeah. So it sounds, I mean, that's been my experience too. I don't have a note taking system either. I just I read and then I typically have to Write something about. It. I synthesize it and produce it mm-hmm. on the blog or yep, in, for the podcast. Yep. That's how you're that's how I remember synthesizing stuff.
0: Synthesizing in your head or yeah. or uh, notes or yep. always synthesize. And, and
1: another thing you do that I I have done intuitively, but you make it explicit is you when you as you're reading and you're taking in inf- new information, you you think about what you're reading this or the information you the new information in terms of concepts, clusters, patterns, and chains. Yeah, and this yeah. also helps you kind of organize in your head. I mean briefly, you can't go too deep, but I mean, briefly, what does that look like? Thinking in concepts, clusters, patterns, and chains?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, a few basic things, you know, I go into depth on all that in the book and there's a lot in there, but one thing is I'm always trying to get on a higher hill than other people. I'm always trying to walk a little further up the mountain to get a little better view of the landscape, of the context of the countryside. When I look at something, I always ask, what is this a component of and what are its components? That's part of something you might call systems thinking or general systems theory. I recommend a great book about general systems thinking, but it's it's understanding that Subnuclear particles are part of a nucleus, are part of an atom, are part of a molecule, are part of a cell, are part of an organism or a being, are part of a community, are part of a city, are part of a state, are part of a country, are part of a nation, are part of a world, are part of the globe of the world, are part of the solar system, are part of the galaxy. You with me? It's a chain that extends. And that's true of everything. So I'm always looking, what's this a part of? What's the if I'm studying the island of Java, which I visited a couple of times, a wonderful place that so has more people on it than any island in the world. Well, I can't understand it unless I understand it's part of Indonesia. I can't understand stuff unless I understand the context, what's around them. There's no way I can understand General Motors and how it's done if I don't understand Toyota. Uh, when I was a, a, a young planner and analyst at a big department store company, we were looking at companies to buy to acquire. And they said, well, go look at the shoe store chain. And I did, but I brought them a report that none of my bosses asked for. I was just a a kid in my uh, late, mid, late twenties. I brought back a whole report on the shoe store industry and who are all their competitors and how they fit in because I didn't want my bosses having this a, a bridged understanding of what they might be getting into. And they ended up buying the shoe store chain, and it was the most successful acquisition in the history of the company I worked for. But so I'm always, you know, I'm always trying to step back, see further, knit together more. Uh, if you study Peter Drucker, the great business writer and thinker, he's one of the very few people who understood demographics, sociology, psychology. Business, economics, geography, and everything he wrote, he had that all kind of in his head. I mean, I I call it wisdom, that, that understanding of kind of how the pieces fit together. So those are kind of some general thoughts on
1: that. Yeah, big picture. Seeing, make sure when you're reading, make sure you see how it fits into a bigger picture. Yeah. Uh, so it has con- gives you context and Absolutely. gives you more information. So another thing you talk about in the book in depth was the importance of adding some serendipity oh, yeah. in, your, in your reading and your learning. Why is that important to incorporate serendipity and how do you do that with your own learning?
0: Yeah, you know… At this stage of the game, uh, I think my mind has just gone serendipitous, you know, (laughs) because I'll sit here. Uh, Well, I'm, I'm well known. I'll be driving down the freeway and I'll see a billboard for a company I've never heard of. And I'll have to pull off onto the shoulder of the interstate and pull out my tablet if I've got a connection and look up the company. So I'm just... You know, I I talk in the book about uh, uh, book learning is critically important, so key to my life, but also observation, conversation, experimentation, travel, all these other ways that we learn. So it it just doesn't take much to distract me. I, I remember this was some years ago that I watched TV ads and I say, what can I learn from them? And you see new products introduced, you know, and all that. But one time I saw an ad and it was for these Ram trucks. Well, Ram was a a brand of Dodge. It was called the Dodge Ram when they came out with a Ram truck. But I noticed that TV ad, they never once used the word Dodge. And I said, wow, that's that's within the history of the auto industry. That's big news. Because what does that mean? That means that the Chrysler Corporation is going to break Ram out as its own brand. And that means that they're going to have separate dealerships at some point. And that means maybe they have too many Dodge dealers or they have Dodge dealers that that want to give up on the cars and just do trucks. Or they have new dealers saying, look, we want to sell your products. We just want those Ram trucks. And it's a safe bet that very, very, very few other people who saw that ad responded to it the way I did and thought about it in that context. And I still meet people that think they're Dodge Rams. Well, no, not really anymore, you know? And Ram has been hugely successful, Dodge uh, somewhat less so, and now it's under a whole new management. They've overall done a great job with it. They also own the Jeep brand. But so I'm always, but, but the example I always use on serendipity is, you know, when I learned words and vocabulary, I looked them up in a physical dictionary. And on the way to look up any word, I would stumble across five or 10 or 20 other words or words right next to it on the same page that I never heard that word before. What's that mean? Well, now if I go online and I look up the definition of the word, all I do is get the definition of that word. It's just like the map issue where, hey, this is only going to tell me how to get to Dallas the fastest way. It isn't going to tell me anything about what's interesting just off the road or where there's a good diner, a good barbecue place a few miles away you know, or a state park that's cool or a music event or concert or whatever. And and so, you know, a lot of it is, is about kind of being chill, about relaxing. Um, the answers to most of your questions are not going to be found where you're looking for them. I mean, I have all these friends that read book, whatever they want to learn. I want to learn to program in Java or whatever. And they read book after book after book. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. When I want to learn a subject, I buy I get the most basic, classic book. If I want to, if there's a subject I know nothing about, particularly in the sciences or math, I'll get one of those For Dummies books, and I'll start it because I want to build a foundation of understanding before I try to go deeper or understand. But you know, just grazing and having your eyes open, I think, and 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 being. And because you meet people say, oh, I won't go to that concert. I don't like that kind of music. I don't, I don't like those kind of movies. I won't go to that movie. You know, I don't want to visit that country. I don't like the people that, Hey, you're just cutting yourself off. That's sad. No. In
1: my experience, the way I inject certain with my reading is I like, so I I buy most of my books from online on Amazon and Amazon has that feature. Like, you know, readers who bought this book also bought that. And I've used that, but you end up just seeing the same things over and over again. Yeah. But the way, if you want to get out of that loop or that bubble is you go to a physical bookstore or the library, yep. the best place to go that I found for you. If you want to find just pleasant surprises is a used bookstore though, because that just has stuff from 50, 60, 40 years ago that you would never come across in a Barnes and Noble. It would never come up in Amazon and you stumble upon it in some weird section of the used bar. Like, wow, I never would have found this if I hadn't been just sort of wandering around this used bookstore.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to both of what you say. And, you know, the use of uh, bookstores, whether it's uh, Barnes and Noble or, or our many great independent stores. When I, when I go into a Barnes and Noble, well, I live out in the country now, so I'm like 45 minutes or an hour away from one. But when I travel, I always stop in. I go to dozens of them every year. And when I, when I go in, I come out I buy as many books as my budget or or credit card will allow at Barnes & Noble because I want to support retail stores. And the bookstore chain I started sold out to Barnes & Noble, so I have friends there. But I also come out with a list of about 30 other books that I write down. I carry little tablets in my pocket. That's that's my ultimate notekeeping system. And I come out with a list of like 30 books that I want to buy later when I have the money that I never would have discovered without that. And then you're right. Uh, Used bookstores take that to a whole nother level, especially um, a really great one. You know, two of my favorites would be Powell's Bookstore, City of Books in Portland, Oregon, probably the best single bookstore in America, The Strand in New York City. And then in Dallas, Half Price Books is a giant chain of used bookstores, a great company all over America, but they're big. I call it the Mothership, their main store where their headquarters is in uh, the north side of uh, Dallas. Is just a wonderland of books. So, yeah, no, you you can't beat a physical bookstore for stumbling across things you didn't think you would be interested in, things you didn't know anybody ever wrote a book about, things you were interested in but didn't know there was this book about them. Because a lot of that stuff gets buried on Amazon and is hard to find, even if you're searching for a subject you like.
1: And again, you can do this this process we talked about that inspectional reading as you're, you know, just (laughs) oh. I'm uh, very quickly and then I'm going to buy this book so I can delve deeper into it.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely, man. I, I, in a bookstore, I open that book. I go straight to the table of contents and in the index, stand there as long as I need to and either put it in my basket or put it back on the shelf.
1: Well, Gary, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work?
0: Uh, yeah, well, uh, the easy way on the book is it's on Amazon, The Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. And the other thing is I wrote a book many years ago about how to start businesses and includes some of the same ideas about how to dream up ideas and how to think, but has a lot more about business. It's called the art of enterprise, but it's only available as a PDF. I did the heart. The book itself is out of print. So I did a PDF version. I added some chapters. And if you go to my, my website, it's called hooversworld.com. And you'll see a link there for the classes I teach and the, the, uh, books I have for sale, but that also has everything I've written. But most of my energy these days, I'm always in anything I study. And certainly when I started companies, if you count all the ones I did in college, I think I started nine companies, two of which were very successful, had some big failures too. But I'm always looking for gaps and vacancies and, and where, where is something the world isn't looking at that they should be. And that led my friends and I to create a website called AmericanBusinessHistory.org. And that we tell a story of a great business, an industry, a company, or a great business leader. And we also have data, uh, demographics, where are Americans moving to and moving from, because that relates to the history of the economy and business. And we do a week, free weekly newsletter. And that's where I put the vast majority of my energy day, because when I Googled business history or American business history, there was like nothing. I mean, you know, there's not a species of a breed of dogs or a species of bird or a rare type of mineral that you can't find 10, 15 websites about. But there was no website, a central place where you can go to learn about the history of American business. And and as part of that context, always I'm always asking, what's the history? Who invented this idea? How did this develop? Who invented this technology? Who started this company? Whatever the subject? Who founded this nation? You know, I wanna know the history first. Where did it come from? And in the business world, you know, other fields, law, economics, uh, uh, law, um, medicine, they study history. All they do in law is study history, precedents and everything. But I can tell you, I meet more people with MBAs that have, they don't even require you to study business history at even our greatest business schools. And so people are lost. <laughs> they aren't learning the lessons of the past, but the successes and the failures. They aren't. There's no better way to learn entrepreneurship and business than to study the biographies of the great, how they thought, how they acted, how they overcame obstacles, that they were human. They weren't a bunch of geniuses. And so that was a huge gap, I believe, in American business and business education and one that, to be blunt, I was the ideal person to fulfill because I've been fascinated by it since 1963, uh, the history of all these. And we cover every industry, every type of business, big, small, family-owned, giants, mergers, Amazon, Sears, Roebuck, you name it. And so AmericanBusinessHistory.org is my main passion these days. Uh, but between American Business and the Hoover's World, I publish occasional newsletters that'll that'll deal with things that are less historical. But I do a weekly one for AmericanBusinessHistory.org. dot org.
1: And just another quick plug for the Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. You've got a reading list there of 160 oh, yeah. books, and I found that really useful because you you kind of organize it in like big topics like thinking, psychology, world history cities. And I've added a whole bunch of books to my Amazon oh, wishlist. And most
0: that. of those books are ones nobody's ever heard yeah, of.
1: Yeah. No, a lot of them i never, never heard of. I mean, so, and so, so what I like about it is it's all that high level stuff, right? So that you can, yep. I don't know. I think it's useful for anyone to check that out. Gary, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hey, Brad, I, I've really enjoyed it. And if anybody goes to either of my websites and clicks on contact, go to Hoover's World, they can always email me directly I answer all my own emails as fast as I can. I love uh, you know, meeting people, talking and thinking about ideas. I do a lot of emails. My friends can tell you way too many. I'm a night owl, so you can email me at three in the morning and I'll probably answer you pretty quickly. And so, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's uh, been a pleasure and I hope all the listeners are always learning. Every night, ask yourself, what did I learn today? And then later, you can ask yourself, how can I apply it? But the first thing is, is the learning.
1: My guest today was Gary Hoover. He's the author of the book, The Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, hooversworld.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is hoover. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the A1 podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android, iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the A1 podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.